In the name of God, the most merciful, the most gracious. All praises are due to him, and to him we are grateful. The one who is responsible for all the blessings, struggles that ultimately become blessings, that have scattered our, that have scattered our paths and shaped us to be who we are today. And I ask God to shower his blessings and peace on our noble prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and upon his family and companions. And I ask God to bless those who the prophet said were his sisters and brothers, because they, be they will believe in him without ever having laid eyes on him, peace be upon him. And I feel so blessed that my path is crossing with yours today, and I'm so honored to be a part of American Muslim history and I applaud the efforts of this mosque and the women and men behind it who have dedicated their time and effort in building a home for themselves in paradise by making this space for women to remember God in Los Angeles. And I pray that God makes this endeavor successful. Say amen. And I pray that what I share with you today is something that will benefit you because it is ultimately from him. And today's topic is a sensitive one. It is about motherhood. I should comment, though, that I am not a mother, but I am a daughter and I'm a counselor. And I've learned a lot about parenting from counseling children. Rather, I've learned a lot about how not to parent. And uh, whether that child is 15 or 55, the effects of parenting are long-lasting. We should remember that parenting is not an obligation. It is not a vanity. It is a trust from Allah. Having children is not like marriage. It's not half of our religion. But if you're going to have children, it is a trust from God. And you have to make sure that you give them everything they need, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But at this point, I want to take you home, to my home. Because I've also learned a lot about parenting from being parented myself. Being a daughter has been the longest gig that I've had, <laughs> basically my whole life. And since we're talking about motherhood, I want to focus on the relationship with my mother. Mother's Day was a few weeks ago, and hopefully, you know, in the next coming months, the Women's Mosque can find somebody to talk about fathers, because it is also an extremely, rela extremely important relationship for women. On that note, I should mention that the only thing that the singer John Mayer said that was useful was fathers be good to your daughters because daughters will love like you do. We use it lightly nowadays, but where do you think the term daddy issues comes from? Sadly, it comes from many daddies. And no one really uses the word mommy issues in the same way. It sounds odd, doesn't it? I mean, moms by default are supposed to be nurturing and caring, and they also bake muffins and bread. And many are. But back to my relationship with my mom. When I was a little girl, my mom would say, Iman, and I would respond to her, Mama. <laughs> and, and I don't remember this, but she once told me that I could only have one popsicle. And after I had that popsicle, I pushed the chair over to the freezer, opened the door, and had another one. I was trouble. And me and my three siblings were a handful. I was mostly a good kid, except that I had a big mouth. I suppose I still do. And I don't think that that mouth of mine got bad for my mom until I became old enough to start to see the dichotomies in the way that I was being raised versus my brothers. 
Once I was lamenting to my mom that maybe if we were more active as kids that we wouldn't have grown up to be overweight adults. And my mom says, what? I always put you kids in sports. Luckily, I was sitting close enough to the mantle where I pointed out all the sports portraits of my brothers, and then there were none of me and my sister. I went out for sports in high school, but it was a little late for that. But my mom did focus in on a religious education for us. We went to Saturday school, summer school, and there were enough Egyptian kids in the neighborhood that my mom used to have after school tutoring for us in between Saturdays. My mom herself was a late bloomer, religiously speaking. She grew up practicing Islam her whole life. Her father was a Maliki Sufi in Egypt, and uh, she started covering her hair in her early 30s. When we were kids, she started taking classes with a, le a learned Syrian woman who really, really changed her life. Till today, she continues to wear a raincoat, and she thinks that's the best way to express her modesty. And she always wanted me to wear one, but I always felt like an elephant wearing a raincoat. <laughs> but as her transformation began, things that went against Egyptian culture started becoming things against Islam. So if Egyptian culture looked down on something, then in my house that meant that Islam looked down on it too. One summer when we were in Egypt, my mom told me it was haram, forbidden, for girls to drink coffee. And I was about 14 or 15 and I was like, what? So I went to my grandmother, and who turned 91 last year, by the way, God bless and keep her healthy, and said, Mama Zainab, is it haram for girls to drink coffee? And I was so dumbfounded. I was like, like coffee, cream, sugar, coffee, that kind of coffee. And my grandma was like, oh, cream and sugar? No, 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 then that, that's okay. <laughs> so to this day, I don't drink Turkish coffee, which is probably from that interaction. This is a lighthearted example of how culture was appropriated by religion. But as I got older, it was, it was less and less amusing. Suddenly, things were haram because I was a girl, and my mom used religion to support her claim. She used to always quote the verse in the Quran, um, surah, from Surah 3, Ayah 36, kal-untha, to tell me that the male is not like the female. These words were uttered upon the birth of Mary, peace be upon her, and I'll come back to this, but her voice still rings in my head with that bit of that verse. And I never knew how to respond, and it didn't really matter because whatever it is that I was trying to do wasn't going to happen. Reflecting on this, I realized that this afflicted, affected me deeply. All of my options were limited, even my career choices. My whole life, my mom encouraged me to go into education because that's the best occupation for mothers. Uh, to be, it, you know, you could be home with the kids in the summer and then be home when they get home. And I remember when I was in my early 20s and all hope was lost that I'd ever get married, my mom told me that if a bachelor's degree got in the way of my marriage, that I would have to quit school. In their defense, though, that would have never been okay with my dad. And my mom, who has a bachelor's degree herself, valued education deeply. But they were freaking out when I hit 21 and was still single. But that's for another talk. <laughs> Even when I decided to get my master's in social work, my mom was concerned about it. Not that she opposed me, because at that point I was 26, but she felt like, what's a stay-at-home mom going to do with a master's degree? Thankfully, when she saw me on stage at graduation, after three grueling years, she was so proud she told me to get a PhD. <laughs> Remember that little Iman that used to talk back to her mom? I mean, I was a baby saying, Mama. <laughs> I did not take these things sitting down. 
I gave my mom hell. It's a wonder that some of her prayers weren't answered and that a bolt of lightning didn't smite <laughs> me down 15 years ago. And I want to come back to that prayer thing, but let me finish this point. I never let it go, and I argued all the time, and I went to scholars and religious leaders, and it was to no avail because she never relented. Another funny story about my mom is in my, my mid-20s, my ban on traveling alone was lifted by me, by force. <laughs> and by the way, all my travel was related to the work that I was doing with the Muslim Student Association at the national level. And I never did any leisurely traveling because I was scared. And uh, because my mom didn't approve of me traveling, she never ever picked me up or dropped me off to the airport. To her, that was condoning my behavior. Uh, and, and, but there was this one time that like everybody was gone and she had to pick me up and because there was nobody else available to get me. And I was excited because that meant that she had to break her covenant. <laughs> and as I waited on the curbside, I look and I see my brother and wife and his wife pull up and I laugh to myself. I don't know how I would have been able to live that down if she had to do it herself. She would have never let me forget it. So what am I trying to say here? My situation wasn't that bad. I survived it, and I've even managed to forge an amazing relationship with my mom with God's help and a little bit of time and therapy to heal. But not everybody is so lucky. Have you ever heard of the phrase, hurt people hurt people? I'll say it one more time. Hurt people hurt people. The thing is, hurt is passed down from one generation to the next, like jewelry or your grandmother's famous recipe but it's not something that's passed on when the parent passes on. It starts pretty early in a child's life, and like a slow poison, the child develops a tolerance to it. She learns how to work through the hurt, and she learns, she learns how to work with the hurt, and she learns how to work through the hurt. And hurt comes in many different forms. Some of the wounds are skin deep and heal easily, but others are deep wounds that leave bad scars. And like a physical wound, if it's not treated, it won't heal properly. Sometimes a scar is inevitable, but it is how the wound is treated that determines how bad the scarring will be. And instead of having a minor scar, you know, like the cute kind, ask me how I got this scar, uh, you'll have a gnarly one. Some emotional scars, though, are hard to hide, and we call those old wounds. We use this analogy a lot in marriage counseling, but imagine you had a bad, knees, a bad knee from your days playing soccer. Normally, it's fine. And you know, but you just have to be careful because it's still a little bit sore. I don't know that about you, and I accidentally bump into you, and you yelp with pain, and maybe you scream out in pain and yell at me to watch out. To me, that reaction will be a little bit overblown, and um, because all I did was lightly bump into your knee, but because of your old wound, you have reacted that way. And had I known, I would have been a little bit more careful around your knee. Sometimes with emotional old wounds, we, we're not, you're not even aware that, that they are there. And I want to go back to what causes the wounds in the first place. Maybe your mom told you you'll never amount to anything because you don't study hard enough. Maybe she told you you need to get married to the first person that comes along because you're not as pretty as your sister, and so you should be happy that anyone even took interest. Maybe she told you that you shouldn't tell anybody about your learning disability or your mental illness so that people don't think that something's wrong with the family. Maybe your mom told you that no one will love you because you're fat. They'll marry you for your money or a green card or something. Maybe you disclosed your sexual abuse to your mom and she told you it was nothing or convinced you that he didn't mean it 
Or maybe she told you that it was in your head. Maybe your mom shamed you when she found out that you were talking to that boy. Maybe the wounds were physical and her way of disciplining you was overly harsh. Maybe she used to publicly shame you or she told you that if you didn't do what she wanted, she would, wouldn't be pleased with you and then God wouldn't bless your life because your mom is mad at you. Or God will punish you if you do such and such. I feel like in my counseling, I have heard it all. My mom used to say, you'll see. You'll say to me, God bless you, mama. I wish I listened to you. I was wrong and you were right. I have yet to have that conversation with her. <laughs> she was right about a lot of stuff, but she was also wrong about, about a lot of stuff. And she's human. But I think you get my drift about hurt people hurting people. This is not to take away from their responsibility because everyone is still accountable. But I'm saying that we should put things in their proper context and, and it's for me to try to help you to understand how to put it in its proper place. And sometimes there are external forces that cause them to hurt. Maybe the family was struggling financially. Maybe she was a single mom or she was in an abusive marriage. Maybe she herself suffered from a mental illness and maybe she wasn't ready to be a mom. Maybe she didn't want to be a mom. Uh, and maybe there was some resentment towards you for the sacrifices she had to make to raise you, and she's not really aware of it. Maybe she used religion to put you down rather than lift you up. This is something that hurts me deeply as a Muslim who's really committed to this faith. Our religion is a light, and to use it as a tool for darkness with a person's own children is so egregious to me. And it also makes my work doubly hard because I have to work on the religious front and the social-emotional front. Remember how I said that being blessed with a child is a trust from God? He actually says in the Quran that children are a test. And why are we tested by God? Usually it's because he is purifying us of our sins or he is elevating our status, uh, he's elevating our status with him. Either, either way, there's a reward at the end of that test. How are we supposed to respond to a test? Either we, uh, I mean, we're supposed to be patient and avoid sinning to response, as a response to that test. God has given mothers a high status. Paradise is at their feet. I love the line from the Dawood Warns Biali song, Wisdom and Tea, where he says, how were you and I to know I'd care for you and looked for hints of paradise as I bend to wash your feet. And mothers deserve that high status. They are working tirelessly around the clock. My husband is 41. And when we travel, he has to call his mom in Egypt and let her know that we got there safe. Otherwise, she'll be cross with us. And when she was living with us for a bit, my brother-in-law accidentally dialed her from Egypt, and she couldn't tell what was going on because she just heard like, and she freaked out and thought that something had happened to him. There's nothing like the prayer of a mother, especially when it's for you. There's so much sincerity in it because she succeeds when you succeed, but she also suffers when you suffer. The Quran speaks about a few extraordinary mothers. The wife of Imran, Mary's mother, may peace be upon Mary and may God be pleased with her mother, dedicated her baby to the service of God while she was pregnant, assuming it was going to be a boy. When that baby was born a girl, nothing changed. She still put her in the service of the temple. I tried that logic with my mom, and that didn't work either. <laughs> and Mary, peace be upon her, was tested in the greatest way. Think about it. She was a single mom, a teen mom, and she was completely chased. Chased. When she came back to her people after giving birth, 
community members were shocked and started assuming things about her. Yet, her status as one of the greatest women in Islam is a result of her piety. Think about it, it's a result of her piety. One of my teachers said that Jesus, peace be upon him, in being called the son of Mary, it's actually an honor to him because of her status with God. And I was taught that the interpretation of that verse that my mom used to say, verily the male isn't like the female, is actually that no male is like this female, referring to Mary specifically, peace be upon her. On a side note, everyone should, every one of us should seek out a teacher or teachers. And what about Moses' mother? Her baby wasn't safe. He was going to be killed for sure. And God inspired her to throw him in the river. And he promised he would keep him safe. Imagine the amount of trust that she would have to have in God to throw her baby in the river. And then she was allowed to nurse him, her own son, in the safety of the palace. And what about Moses' stepmom, Asia? She was a believer, and she was in an abusive marriage. She was married to a guy who was so narcissistic, such a megalomaniac, that he actually thought he was God. She didn't have a way out like many women these days, and she turned to the real God and asked for a house in paradise as a reward for the test she was given in Pharaoh as a husband. Imagine being married to somebody who thinks he's God. God forbid. But seriously, think of how many of our mothers are now married to modern pharaohs today. May God protect our mothers, daughters, and sons, and may he guide our fathers and husbands to be the men they need to be to enable our mothers to be like these extraordinary women. Say amin. And what about our mother Khadija? May God be pleased with her. She was a working mom, she was a foster mom to Ali, and she was her husband's boss. And last, but certainly not least, was Hajar, or Hagar, because I'm Egyptian. <laughs> and she was Egyptian, mother of Ismail. She was a poor mom who could not provide for her son, who was wailing from hunger. Every year, millions and millions of people recreate her attempt to find nourishment for her son. Something that's always fascinated me about her story is that she... Hello? Yeah. She, <laughs> sorry. She ran between those two hills, and when she came back, Zemzem was under the feet of her son. Her job was just to put forth the effort, and God provided the provision. It's, it's kind of amazing if you think about it. So my advice to you is to go out there and engage these women's stories through the Quran and get to know them. And there are many more mothers in the Quran, like Sarah, the wife of Ibrahim, and many, many others and reflect on the challenges that they faced and how they responded to them, and internalize those lessons. The status that mothers have is high, and with that status comes power. And pardon the cliche, but we know that with great power comes great responsibility. I love Spider-Man. <laughs> mothers have to make sure that they balance the power with the responsibility that comes with it. And children have a responsibility as well, but that's for another ban another day. Okay, so wrapping up. Now you're an adult, so now what? The first step is to recognize the effect on you. Try to recognize what your old wounds might be and assess the relationship and if harm is still occurring. If that's the case, then the first thing you should do is minimize, inter minimize interaction, or sorry, minimize the harm. And if that means in minimizing interactions, then so be it. This might just mean that avoiding certain topics, like, for example, I cannot talk to my mom about ever getting a nose ring. 
And I mostly avoid talking about religion to my mom as well, because it always ends up in the adult version of me going, Iman, mama. <laughs> and it doesn't have to mean that you cut, com cut communications completely. Yes, you might feel very, very guilty, and that's normal. But I always say that guilt is an internal mechanism, and it isn't always the right motivation, especially if it's been tinkered with and manipulated as your whole life as a child. If the, mechanism, uh, if the mechanism isn't working properly, then it shouldn't be the reason that you do or don't do something. Once the harm has been minimized, the next step is to assess the damage done and to get help. Whether it's through therapy, a trusted friend, a spiritual guide, or other family members, it doesn't matter as long as it's helpful. But you have to get help. And the idea is to build, not break down. You should have the intention to have a fulfilling relationship with your mom. But unfortunately, sometimes that isn't possible. And it's time to grieve over that loss in the same way you would grieve over the loss of a loved one. And that doesn't mean that you can't or shouldn't have a relationship with them, but it'll be one where the most important thing is that you're protected. And that protection comes from God. I have to be very careful, though, what I say here. This is not a license to disrespect or, dis or treat your parents with malice. This is about protecting yourself from harm. Outside of that, if there are obligations and responsibilities that you can do while keeping yourself safe from harm, they should be done. I want to end this on a lighter note. I've said a lot about my mother today. They actually don't know that I'm here doing this. I figured that Facebook will surprise them. Um, <laughs> I could talk about why that later. Um, but I've said a lot about my mom today, and I haven't really told you much about her. She came here when she was in her early 20s, and she came newly married to my dad, and my grandfather was already here and already starting to build his roots in the Chicago Muslim community. My oldest brother was born in 1974, and my youngest sister was born in 81. She had two boys and two girls, and I was number three. When she came to the US, she had no idea what she was getting herself into. I asked her once, I'm like, did you give any thought to the fact that you'd be raising kids in this strange foreign country called America? And she said, no, I just wanted to be with my mom and dad. She shepherded us through public school and weekend school and after school and summer Islamic school, all the while she was developing herself spiritually, really focusing on devotional practices. And now she's a woman who spends her nights in, in prayer and remembrance of God. My mom used to quote my grandfather saying that a leader is one that who serves the community. And actually, it's the prophet who said that. And that's probably where my grandfather got it. And she's, she has woven service into her life and ours. I would not be standing here today if it weren't for her prostrations, her prayers for me, her commitment to service. She's now known as the rice pudding lady um, because every Friday, without fail, she is at the Islamic Foundation in Villa Park, Illinois, where she makes rice pudding on Wednesdays, and then on Fridays she goes to help make and sell food after Friday prayers. I gave a talk at that mosque once, and I said, maybe some of you don't know me, but my mom is a rice pudding lady. And the room erupted in cheers and boots and hollers, hoots and hollers. And, and I honestly, to, to like, if I remember correctly, I don't think my talk got any applause. <laughs> To me, to me, my mom is a woman of paradise, and I hope that she'll take me with her, even if, she has, even if I have a nose ring. <laughs> we've had some rocky times, um, but we overcame, and we've been able to have a productive relationship. 
My prayer is for all of us, my prayer for all of us is that we are able we are able to be whole and healthy physically and emotionally. And that we should then should we be blessed with the opportunity, be the kind of mothers that raise daughters who will change the world. I pray that we are people who are concerned with our afterlife so that God can take care of our worldly affairs. I ask God to forgive you and me. Anything beneficial that I've said, it always was and is from God, and all else is from myself and the devil. Thank you. May peace be upon the Prophet. And our last prayer is to thank and praise God, Lord of all the worlds.